Welcome to the Sailing to Success podcast, the show created exclusively for entrepreneurs and small business owners looking for a safe port in the storm of fast-paced business growth. Lindsay Phillips is the founder of Smooth Sailing Online Support, a company dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and small business owners increase customer service, run their business more effectively, and increase their profits. Prepare to be inspired and learn some practical tips and strategies you can use in your business today. And now, welcome your host and captain for this 30-minute excursion, Lindsay Phillips. Welcome to the Sailing to Success podcast. So this show was created exclusively for entrepreneurs and small business owners looking for a safe port in the storm. So my name is Lindsay Phillips and I'm your host and captain for this 30-minute excursion. Um, I am the founder and CEO of Smooth Sailing Online Support, a company dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and small business owners calm the choppy waters of fast-paced business growth. So I created this podcast to really motivate and inspire entrepreneurs to achieve more, but also to share some really practical tips, um, business building strategies, you know, to be more productive, boost your profits and grow your business. And today, um, you know, of course, one of the elements of growing a business, of course, is money and finances and, um, you know, planning for the future. So today I'm talking to best-selling author and sought-after speaker, Robert Gignac. Um, he combines knowledge and passion and visuals to encourage people to take control of their personal finances so that they have a richly imagined future. Um, he by taking the intimidation and dryness out of financial planning, which is what I really love about Robert actually, he's a great storyteller. He illustrates the importance of perspective and horizons and challenges audience to courageously paint their picture for what rich really means, um, and which turns into a good segue into his book actually, which is Rich is a State of Mind, and we'll get into that of course. So. Uh, with no further ado, uh, thank you so much, Robert, for coming on my um, podcast show. Hi, Lindsay. It's great to be with you today. Perfect. So, um, so yeah, so as I was saying, you know, rich is a state of mind. And, uh, you know, for, the, which is, of course, the book that you've written. Now, what does that mean exactly, um, that rich is a state of mind? Well, I created the book because I wanted to take some of the confusion and intimidation out of the concept of financial planning for right. North Americans. And so when people ask me, so what's the book about? I tell them the same thing all the time. Rich is a State of Mind is a novel okay. about personal finance as seen through the eyes of a slightly dysfunctional American family. Trying to come to grips with money, investing, insurance, what does it all mean, goal setting, compound interest, all of those kind of basic life lessons that we wake up at the age of 50 and go, man, I wish I'd known this when I was 28. <laughs> totally. Uh, so obviously it's not your ordinary financial how-to book. It's not. And when I created the book, I didn't think the world needed another textbook yeah. on personal finance, the seven steps to, or the, the 10 steps to. And I thought that if I could create a story set inside a humorously dysfunctional family that people would a relate to the characters yeah. and if they related to the characters then they'd get the content and fortunately for me um, 
it's been proven out. The book's an international bestseller with over 40,000 copies sold. Awesome. Uh, but I'm not saying that to try to impress you or your listener because I don't think it's all that impressive. Uh, Dan Brown and J.K. Rowling and E.L. James are not losing sleep over my book sales. <laughs> but the important thing is, is that people are consuming it. It's helping them. I mean, that's the goal, right? Exactly. And if, if it helps make things a little clearer or take some of the anxiety out of it, or even helps people point them in the direction of, yeah, maybe I should sit down with a financial advisor and just whether or not I want to work with them just to get a second opinion and go, am I on the right track here or have I missed the boat? And, you know, obviously with, you know, uh, smooth sailing as your corporate tagline, missing the boat is an important thing. That is so true. Um, and yeah, I mean, sometimes it's even, you I mean, you, God, we're all so busy every day, right? And you have so many things on your plate. But even if you stop, you read your book or whatever it may be and stop and think, maybe I should start looking at this. It's just having your mind open to that to, to sort of delve into it and figure it out. I think it's one of the, the critical things we do as entrepreneurs because we get so tied up running our business and it becomes so much of what we do that oftentimes we don't take a look and step back at our own personal lives and take care of the stuff that's happening there, right? It's kind of like the, the old adage about the, the cobbler's kids have no shoes, right? Totally. <laughs> making shoes for everybody else. That while we're running our businesses and in those businesses, we're helping other people run theirs or the corporations that we service Everyone need to take a step back, look in the mirror and go, how are my own finances doing? Yeah. And some people are in denial of it or they just like, they think it's a, like, oh, they're scared, right? Their fear of where am I at and where should I be and is it doable? Do you find that fear is, is such like a barrier to, to moving forward? Fear is a huge factor, I think, Lindsay. And part of that comes from, the fact that money is very emotional yeah. for most of us. Uh, we get our basic lessons from the families that we grew up in. And if our parents and grandparents were good with money, then we probably got some pretty good lessons along the way. But this is where I'm sometimes critical of the education system. Yeah, They don't want to teach money in school. They Money should be taught at home. But if your parents didn't have any good lessons to teach you, they can't teach you what they don't know. No, you're him. And, and so then we get caught in the middle thinking that, well, the school isn't teaching it, but I'm not getting the lessons at home. Where do I get that education from? I know. I so wish that I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old and it's like, you know, I hope that the education system changes a little bit, you know, by the time they're in, in, you know, high school or whatever. It's like, I so wish we were taught personal finances or investments or all of that stuff because it's so complicated and it is intimidating, as you said earlier. The, the upside, Lindsay, is that it is getting better. Uh, education uh, boards in both the U.S. and Canada, where I'm located, are, are starting to do a better job. But what they're really in some cases they're missing the point and what they're teaching them is there's all kinds of talk about financial literacy and you know, we have to improve financial literacy and literacy is, is an interesting issue because let's think about it from just the concept of basic literacy. 
the literacy rate in North America is upwards of 97 or 98 mm percent. -hmm. Everybody knows how to read. The problem isn't literacy. They know how to read. The yeah. problem is action. They do not read. And so when people say that, you know, we need to improve financial literacy, my comment back is often maybe what we should be looking at is improving their financial action, not their literacy. Just because they know about the concept right. and, and the techniques, if they're not acting on them, that doesn't make it any better. No, and I, I feel like from my perspective that people are ill-equipped to take action because they don't know what to do and when and how. Our, our biggest problem with our finances, and, and trust me, I, I've been there. I haven't known this stuff all my life. I had to learn a lot of lessons. And as Dave Ramsey says, I had to pay a lot of stupid tax along the way um, <laughs> in order to learn that. something is that as part of those lessons, taking the time to get some education and more importantly, working with somebody who will help hold you accountable yeah. is very important. And whether you call them a financial coach or a financial advisor, um, it's important that we work with people who can help hold us accountable and help educate us in the things we don't know. Because the, the biggest mistake we can make is not knowing what we don't know, but acting like we do know. Totally. Now, I know um, I was looking at an interview that you did, and you were saying that people need to ask the why before the how. It, it, does that sort of tie into what we're talking about? I think it does, because too many times we're, we're interested in technique. Teach me, teach me the technique. Teach me the six things I need to know yeah. to be better at X. But then the question becomes, why do you want to be better at X? What is it about X that is, is a passion or an interest for you? And because if you know the why, you can go figure out the how. The how is easy. There's all kinds of information out there about how. There's very little information out there about why. Because why has to come from inside of us. Right. And so that we, when we can focus on that why, why are we doing this? Why are we making those sacrifices with our finances. Why? Because I want a better life for myself and my family. Why? Because I want to take my kids to Disneyland. Why? Because I know that two years from now, the car that I'm driving today uh, is going to die and I'm going to need a new one, so I better start setting money aside today. But all too often, we're focused on the technique rather than the, the goal of why are we doing this in the first place? Because if you can't answer that, you won't get committed to any plan That's that true. helps you accomplish it. So do you also focus on the why am I not taking action? Most of the time we're not taking action, I think, Lindsay, because we're afraid of the fact that we're not sure we know how, mm -hmm. or we're afraid to admit to ourselves and those close to us that this why is what I really want. And that's where the subject of goal setting becomes very, very important. You can't accomplish things without setting the goal. We're reluctant to set the goal because then we have to admit to ourselves, this is what I really want. Right. And sometimes to do that, we're afraid that our friends or people close to us will go, <laughs> that's what you want? You gotta be kidding. And in order to avoid that, uh, 
judgment? Judgment or, or criticism, as it were, in order to avoid being judged, we don't do anything. And it's, it's easier to do nothing than it is to put it oh, out there totally. and say, this is what I want, and have people go, yeah, that's kind of silly. Well, that's great, because this is for me. It's not for you. I'm not doing this to impress you. I'm doing this to impress me. And sometimes I think we all get caught up in that judgment phase. Mm. And, and absolutely, I've been there myself. You, you know what it's like when, when you've never written a book and you tell people, I'm going to write a best-selling book on personal finance. Yeah, sure you are. You were in the 5% <laughs> yeah. of your high school and college class made the top 95% possible. And you're going to write a best-selling book? I know we do worry about what people think. And I think like from my experience with, you know, people that I know and myself, it's, it, it's kind of like, do you want to admit that you don't know it all in respect to your personal finances or that you have this fear of making the wrong decision and people judging you for it as well? When it comes to finances, and this is where the emotional stuff gets really interesting. I think Lindsay, when you look at other aspects of our lives, we take our car to the auto mechanic when it's not working. We take mm -hmm. ourselves to the doctor when we're not working as, as a physical entity. We'll hire people to cut our lawn, to paint our house, to clean our house. All things that we could do by ourselves, to be honest, but we outsource them. But when it comes to dealing with our personal finances in our money, we have this belief that if I outsource that, I must be stupid because I should be able to figure this out all by myself. I know. And I wonder why that is. It's kind of weird. I tell audiences all the time that it has nothing to do with your intelligence yeah. and your relationship to money. And in some, a line I use with audiences all the time, never confuse your W-2 and your IQ because mm -hmm. – there's a big difference between those numbers. Yeah. And I, I know really intelligent people who, for whatever reason, can't make a significant amount of money when all the talent, skills, and abilities they have mm -hmm. should say, these people should be doing great. And I know other people who make an exorbitant amount of money who, at the end of the day, you'd look at them and go, they can't be that smart. How are they doing this? And I think part of that inverse relationship is, is the fact that the people who are doing really, really well mm -hmm. are seeking out the help of others for advice to guide them on things they don't know. And in some cases, the I'm too smart, I should be able to figure this out all by myself, I don't want to ask anybody for help, it must mean I'm dumb if I do, holds mm -hmm. us back from being successful. That is so true. And I know you talk a lot about, you know, money mindset. So like these are sort of the good and the bad thoughts that we have in our head about our relationship with money. So how can we change our money mindset? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to look at or take a good long look in the mirror at the person staring back and go, it's okay to admit you don't know stuff. Yeah. And it's one of the, the biggest impediments that we as entrepreneurs have and as individuals as well. It's not just an entrepreneurial thing. No. And, you know, we start out as an entrepreneur and part of the problem, I think that many, where many entrepreneurs get stuck mm -hmm. is 
they had a great idea and maybe they worked for a company and were doing very well inside that company. The, the example I always use is somebody who's a really good chef. They're working at a great restaurant. They're a good chef. Um, they've developed a reputation. People come to that restaurant because of them. And then somebody says to the chef, you should open your own restaurant. You're too good for this. You should open your own place. And they get the idea and they go, you're right. I should. And so they open their own restaurant. And then because they open their own restaurant, what they find is they spend the bulk of their time managing inventory and buying supplies and hiring people and working with decorators and setting menus. And all of a sudden the thing they were most passionate about, which is cooking is the thing they're doing the least. Yeah. And because of that, they lose their passion for that. And oftentimes, you know, people who are really good chefs or are really good at X, Y, or Z, it's okay to stay good at X, Y, and Z. But when you try to become, you know, all things to all people, then you lose that focus on the thing you're passionate and excellent about and your performance stuffers and you start to get uh, disappointed about, you know, how you're managing your career. Yeah, that's so true. Now, so we've obviously talked about money mindset, you know, getting a more positive outlook. Um, so within your book, Rich is a State of Mind, you obviously cover all that stuff. But through the story, sort of, what are some of the takeaways? Like, what are some of the things that we should be doing to kind of, you know, get our finances in order or create a better financial future for ourselves? Are, are there what certain, are, like, mistakes that people do or... I'd hesitate to call them mistakes. Um, it has a negative connotation. Right. And we all, none of us like to think, oh, I made a big mistake there. <laughs> um, you know, you, you might want to even you know, couch it a little more different, say, well, I, I created a learning opportunity for myself there, um, you know, which we all do on an ongoing basis. But I think getting comfortable with the emotional side of money mm -hmm. and the concept of what does rich really mean and the characters in the book, and I haven't really discussed them, so I will for a second if that's okay with you. Yeah. You've got Richard Jarvis, who's the mentor in the book. He's the big picture whiteboard kind of guy, likes to draw lots of stuff, deals in images. And as the story unfolds, he's spending his time with his niece and nephew, James and Joyce, who are 20-somethings trying to come to grips with everything related to money and personal finance and kind of life in general. They've only found out at the, as the book opens that they actually have an uncle Richard. So there's a slight communication problem within the family dynamic that, you know, you don't generally get into your twenties and find out you've got an uncle who lives yeah. in the same town as you as you've ever met. So, you know, they, de they determined once they found out they had him that they were going to seek him out and, they were not prepared for what they found. They said, oh, this guy must be, you know, a uh, black sheep of the family, he must be, you know, kind of off the wall. There's a reason they've hidden them from us and found out, um, as often people do when they deal with black sheeps within the family dynamic, uh, kind of smarter than everybody else and is the rest of the family, so they shunt aside. Hmm. And when they finally met him and got to know him, they do him just want you know 
And he said, I will under one condition, that you don't use it for your own personal gain, that you take what I teach you and then you take it and go out and teach everybody else. Hmm. So in short, he didn't want them to do it for themselves. Right. And that's how they created what they called the agreement that led to the monthly meetings that span the next 13 months as the story unfolds. And then they got Richard's best friend, John, involved, who is a certified financial planner. And so while Richard liked to draw things on the board, John would then describe things in the black and white nuts and bolts that any financial advisor would when talking about the concepts of compound interest and retirement savings and why you need insurance and why you need a will and all of the supporting documents that go into creating a financial plan. Everybody thinks that the personal fund is just about money and investing, and it's not. It's about oh. everything else we do to protect us and to protect our families. And I think it's something, Lindsay, that we as entrepreneurs sometimes don't do very well. We're, we're so focused on the doing part yeah. that we overlook the protection part. When you're an entrepreneur and you don't have disability insurance to take care of the fact that what happens uh, you know, not, I'm not thinking so much about the catastrophic car accident, but even uh, you play, you break your leg playing so slow pitch softball, and you've got to stop, be off work for six weeks. Right. Or you know, you're you're a downhill skier, or you're water skiing behind the boat, um, and something happens that takes you out of your game for six weeks, or three months, or six or eight months, or more. Really bad accident. You chose not to have the ability to recover the risk of the fact that you as the entrepreneur, you are in business. Right. You know, and the, the fact, and we've just seen this in the last week, um, you know, musical artist Prince, of whom I'm a huge fan, died and comes out yesterday. He doesn't have a will. Wow. He He's an individual with multiple companies, recording contracts, a recording studio, a number of artists under uh, his Paisley yeah. Park label, business operations worth millions and millions of dollars, dies without a will. Wow, I didn't realize that. And, you know, it's, nobody wants to talk about the will. I know. I, I, I wrote a best-selling book on personal finance, I have, I have a will, I have powers of attorney, I have insurance, the supporting all the things I need to build that protective wall around myself and my family. <clears throat> but it took me years to get my mom and dad to have one. Because they were convinced that the moment you created the will, it somehow sped up the timeline that you were going to need to actually execute the will. Well, if I don't have a will, then I'll never die. <laughs> <laughs> That whole mindset and your beliefs, right? How it affects your actions. Absolutely. And people will say, <clears throat> you know, I don't need insurance. Well, okay. You don't need the, the nice today, thing is insurance is it for you. <laughs> Right. But the insurance, as I try to tell all the time, the insurance isn't for you. Because, frankly, yeah. insurance is winning. I call it in the book the negative lottery. You, you, you win the lottery, but you're dead. Yeah. So it's for the people left behind you. And it's, it's interesting that 
you know, sometimes you work with entrepreneurs and they'll go, well, you know, $100,000 worth of insurance should be enough or 200000 should be enough. And it's like, you're married and you have two small children. What will it cost your wife to raise the kids you leave behind? Or what would it cost you if something were to happen to your wife? You're running the business and now in order to take care of the kids, you need to hire a nanny or you hire somebody to clean your house or because in the devastating loss of house, maybe you don't work for six months. Yeah. All of the costs that go into this that, you know, we, in some cases, we underestimate. And you don't realize the full, what the real situation would be if you don't protect yourself. And, and I admit it's, it's scary as heck to think about. It is. And, and it's that fear is is that, well, if I don't think about this, it's never going to happen. And, and the reality is, even if you look at actuarial numbers from insurance companies, that the average individual in North America at some point in their lives will face a six to eight week incident that takes them out of work for whatever reason. Or maybe it's the case that we need to take care of a parent. Yeah, that's you a know, lot lately. I'm, I hear a lot of I'm about an it. only child and my parents are both age 75. I'm 55 and I'm, I'm knocking on my desk here. They're, my mom and dad are relatively healthy and it's great. Mm-hmm. But if something were to happen tomorrow, would I walk away from my business in order to help them? In a heartbeat, there there would be no. Uh, I can do this now. Yeah, you know, it's something we we would do in in a heartbeat without a second thought. But the reality is, how have we built support systems of things you your clients about all the time? Mm. How do you build those support systems around your little entrepreneurial enterprise that could allow you to walk away for a little while? Or have we built up enough of a buffer and emergency fund account that could fund our enterprise for three, four, five months in the event that we had to do that? And that's why I think these discussions around money are so important. And I love how you use the term protection. I mean, for me, that really hit home. It's like if you, you know, insurance, I don't know, it has sort of a negative connotation for whatever reason. Um, financial planning, or it it just seems overwhelming. But when you sort of put it in the view that, you know, like protection planning, or you're putting the steps into place to protect your family. Like, for me, when you said it that way, I'm like, I don't know why, but that just hit home more than more than anything. Well, then I've done my job here today. (laughs) But it's true. If you sort of like you think about it differently, and you sort of change your mindset around it and, and, you know, try to overcome some of those fears. And when you put it in the light that you're protecting your family, like what's most important to you, you know? And, you know, everybody says that. And in many cases where we pay lip service to it, mm-hmm. but we don't follow through. Right. The, the recent numbers that I've seen, um, and they almost mirror what happens in the U.S. and what happens here in Canada is that upwards of 50% of both the Canadian and American populations Mm -hmm. do not have a will. And there's a line I use in the book when I talk about wills that I get a lot of feedback about, and it's this. 
If you die without a will, you show complete and utter disrespect for the people in your life you say you love. Well, that statement hits home. <laughs> but yeah, and no, you're right. Because we think, when, when you die without a will, the phrase they use is called intestate. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really kind of an ugly sounding word. You know, it makes you think of intestines and stuff. <laughs> um, but, the, but the reality is that's really kind of what it's like when you die without a will. It can be a pretty ugly mess. I have heard about, some stories, yeah. About what goes where, and people just think, well, if I die, everything goes to my spouse. Yeah, no. In, in most cases, yes, but it can vary from state to state. It varies between your country and our country. Everybody's laws are a little different. And just the and headaches and the length of time that it takes to get through it all, right? Exactly. When to sit down with a lawyer for an hour and draft a document that is very clear, black and white, you know, if, if I go first, you know, here's what happens. I want everything to go to my spouse and I want a couple of things to go to charity and I want mm -hmm. my kid's education taken care of. And if she goes first, then yep, stuff's coming to me and she's got some things she needs to take care of for her parents. And, you know, especially when you get into the concept of blended families Yeah. and it, things have to be very clearly defined. There's a, a recent thing I talked to at an event uh, just last week here in Canada called the Kelly case and it happened out in Western Canada and this will I, I think resonate with a lot of your listeners it was a gentleman he had three daughters and he was divorced and he got remarried and the woman he remarried it was her first marriage so he had three previous marriage mm -hmm. first marriage during the marriage that son now there's four children in the family and mom and dad were in a car accident, but didn't die at the same time. Dad died immediately in the car accident, and they had no wills. So what happened was, in lieu of a will, dad died first. Everything went to mom. Right. Mom died 21 days later as a result of her injuries, and then mom died. Where did everything go? Everything went to the son. Nothing went to the daughters. Wow. Because dad died first, leaving everything without the will, leaving everything to mom. Mom right. dies 21 days later, but mom only has one natural born offspring. Exactly. Son, and everything went Crap. to him. They lobbied the government. They took it to the Supreme Court of the province saying, this is wrong. And the son went in with the daughters. This isn't, you know. This is not right. This is not what my mom and dad would have wanted. Right. And, the, and the court said very plainly, if your mom and dad wanted something else, they should have had a will. Mm. And it doesn't take a lot of work to create these protective documents that would solve hours and days and weeks and months of heartache for the people totally. you leave behind. You know, it's a little known fact, I think, Lindsay, at some point, we're all going to die. Yep. <laughs> but the reality is, we all hope it's 52 years from now. Yeah. And, you know, if we all knew the day, if we had that, you know, that Ouija board or the magic eight ball that said, your day is March 27th, 2038. Great. On March 27th, I go bring it a will. 
you know, six days in advance, I'd take out a huge whack of life insurance too. Yeah. But, there, but, but we don't have either of those. And, you know, it's just one of the many, many things as it relates to personal finances we need to deal with. That's, yeah. I mean, just your phrasing and how you put it, you, it really hits home for sure. And I hope that affects a lot of people to get their button gear and get their finances in order. <laughs> because yeah, yeah, again, as you said, like entrepreneurs, we're so focused on our business and growing it. And obviously we focus on our, you know, children and our families and stuff like that. But quite often there's so many things that we just kind of procrastinate on. Right. Well, it's, they're uncomfortable things mm -hmm. to think about. Yes. Now, you know, in, in order to create a will and, and contemplate life insurance, well, why are you buying life insurance? You know, take care of people when I die. Holy crap. That means I'm dead. Um, I don't want to think about me being dead. Um, you know, and, and the reality is I don't want to think about me being dead either. I, I kind of like life. It's a cool thing. <laughs> um, but it, at the end of the day, and, you know, it's that procrastination and it's not just an insurance and will thing. It's, it's an investment thing. It's, mm -hmm. I, I know friends, a couple of friends of mine who were entrepreneurs. I'm not sure. I'm sure if they, if I really pushed them on, they haven't balanced their personal financial checkbooks in probably two years. Whoa. Why? Cause they'll get to it. The nice thing is they're running excellent businesses with excellent cash flow, And as long as that stays consistent, you know, and, and we've all worked for companies that did really well financially and they, they papered over all their problems by throwing money at it and it made yeah. the problem go away. And but then one day something happens and the cash flow isn't there. And now all of a sudden we have to face the problem that our little company has. It's it's just the procrastination bug kind of bites us all uh, for different reasons. And then we decide because we've procrastinated so long, we can procrastinate a bit more. <laughs> That's so true. You know, the people. What's another month? <laughs> it, it's it's the old adage, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Well, the best time to plant a tree in your backyard was 20 years ago. Yeah. Because today, today you'd be sitting under the shade and swinging yeah. and, and in the hammock. <laughs> but the second best time to plant the tree is today yeah if you didn't plant the tree 20 years ago you know and uh and we all need to you know in a, in a very nice loving way every once in a while take a kick in the butt yeah absolutely somebody that that says what are you doing yeah and you know and trust me i Lindsay, i do not have this all figured out for myself i get a kick in the butt on a regular basis from from some very good friends of mine mm -hmm. who who go bob what are you doing? You know, and it's like, yeah, I know. Um, you oh, know, I've been <laughs> working, I've been working on the sequel to the book for two and a half years now. Oh, awesome. And no, oh, no, it only took me a year to write the first book. Oh, well, get going. <laughs> I've been working on the sequel for two and a half years. And it's like, you know, and I've got good friends of mine who call me on. It's like, so yeah. how's it going? Shut up. How's it going? So, so you ready to show us what you got yet? No. Um, you know, and a glamorous uh, thing to do is write a book in a cafe. Well, it it is because you know people think they they have this uh, 
I guess, romantic image of, of what it's like to be a writer. And you're, you're, you're sitting in a little cafe uh, with a latte and a little beret on, writing in your, your leatherback <laughs> journal and, uh, you know, looking up the ceiling going, you know, what great creative thought will I have today that I can share with the world? Yeah. Um, and it really isn't like that at all, Lindsay. It's, it's a lot of work, and you've got to sit your butt down in the chair and on a consistent basis and do it on days when you don't feel like it and do it on days when everything comes easily and do it on other days when, and I tend to write everything longhand mm. um, on legal pads. It's just, wow. I know what works for me. Yeah. And, and some days after my allotted writing time, I can look at that legal pad and I've got 14 pages of incredibly intricate doodles and not very many words. Um, because it just happens that way. And but you've got other things to do. I mean, you're speaking, you're, you, you know, it's, it's not like your day is dedicated. Every day is fully dedicated to writing. No, it, it's not. But it, at the same time, uh, as the entrepreneurs listening will know, uh, don't always get to do the cool stuff. No, you know, <laughs> I, for me, the cool stuff is, is speaking, um, you know, having conversations mm -hmm. with people like you and it's cool stuff. But at the end of the day, the not so cool stuff is the contacting companies. Um, I often call it the prostitution factor of my job is you've <laughs> got to be out there every day going by me, right? You're out yeah. there selling yourself and, you know, and every once in a while people go, why should I buy you? And, you know, then you, you go, because I'm great. I, I'm, I'm great at what I do. People love me. And, you know, then you come to the realization that it's not about you. No. It, it's about them. Yeah. And, and what they really want to know is what's in it for me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so sometimes we fall victim as entrepreneurs to thinking, hey, I'm pretty good um, <laughs> at this stuff. And then we find out eh, other people don't care that you're pretty good at your stuff. You know, because they're more worried about the roof. And uh, that, that's what makes this entrepreneurial path that we're on and you're on and your listeners are on uh, pretty fun at the end of the day, as long as you're willing to put up with those days when it, it doesn't seem like much fun at all. That is true. It's not all glamorous. <laughs> um, so what is your next book about, uh, Robert? I'm really torn. Okay. Um, about the next book and that's probably what's led to the angst and, and yeah. the procrastination about it is there's a subset of, of people who've read the book who would like to see a sequel to the book where I take the characters, age them by a decade and take them, continue the journey. Right. Which I, I am in full agreement on is one path that I would like to pursue there is a problem with that, and I committed the immortal sin um, from an author perspective, uh, and I'm, I'll give a little bit away. Um, I accidentally killed one of the characters in, in the book, <laughs> and so they, they don't make it to the end. So how do you have a discussion about wills and estates? Well, you do it by killing one of the characters. Fair enough. <laughs> and and, and I, I did that. And the problem, which I didn't realize until much later, is apparently I killed the most interesting character. Uh. And so that character, Richard, the mentor, 
he's not around for book two. Yeah. For me to, to use, and I can't age him 10 years, no. and I can't, I could do a prequel, but then the kids would be like 13 years old, yeah. who are the 20-somethings, and that doesn't work. Um, you know, I thought maybe of, of, for those of you of a certain age demographic, um, you might remember an old TV show called Dallas, where they blew off an entire season of the show and brought back a character who was dead and went, oh, it was just a dream. Yeah, exactly. I do um, that. You know, and they, they killed off an entire season of the show, which never really apparently happened. Um, but I, I think that would be uh, cheating the reader yeah. uh, to do that kind of thing. Uh, so, I, so I'm kind of stuck on what to do with the, the remaining characters. Um, and, the, you know, I could find a new mentor in the book or bring in somebody else from the dysfunctional family tree who, who people have never met uh, and have some fun with it. Or do I just create a different book? Uh, yeah. And, and to be honest, I, the stuff I'm towards, Lindsay, is some of the stuff we about today, yeah. which is perhaps something along the lines of the Entrepreneur's Guide to Personal Finance and Money. That would be good. And, you know, so, so there, there's some hope for my writing yet. Uh, <laughs> You've got a lot of room to play um, with. I'll put the morning. I, it, I, I can see it um, in the inbox on my desk. It's in a bright yellow file folder. Uh, that, you know, where my notes and things I've, I've compiled are. Um, and the question is, when will it come out of the inbox on the desk? And when will I actually open it and do something else with it? And at the moment, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck with your second book. And uh, I know everyone out there will be uh, intrigued as to what transpires. <laughs> well, I hope so, because I'm actually interested to find out what happens to them, too. <laughs> that's the fun part of your job I guess yes awesome well I so appreciate talking to you it's been you know informative it's been um, yeah just a lovely journey um, so for the audience how can they find more information about you Robert or sort of learn how they can move forward with their financial plan ask you any questions well I've got websites that they can go to I've got a website that's strictly dedicated to the book, yeah. which is www.richisastateofmind.com. So it's the book's title just yeah. spelled out, richisastateofmind.com, which completely focuses on the book. And then there's my personal website, which is robertgeniac.com, which is R-O-B-E-R-T-G-I-G-N-A-C.com, which is my name. And at that site, they can download articles I've written for uh, various magazines on personal finance, leadership, entrepreneur issues. They can video at different events. Websites have a contact page where they can out, ask me a question, my best to answer it, or just say hi and you enjoyed our conversation. I'd be happy with that too. Perfect. And I love your blogs. Again, you're a great writer. Um, I love how you have storytelling uh, elements to your blogs. So definitely recommend checking those out. Um, so yeah, again, it's been lovely chatting with you. I so appreciate you coming on. Um, so for all you listeners out there, uh, that's it for this special episode of Sailing to Success podcast. Um, you can check out this episode and uh, my videos and blogs as well at lindsayphillips.com. So that's L-Y-N-D-S-A-Y. 
phillipswith2ls.com and you can check out my services at ssonlinesupport.com. So until next time, folks, I wish you a productive and profitable week and may the winds always be at your back. You've been listening to the Sailing to Success podcast, the show created exclusively for entrepreneurs and small business owners looking for a safe port in the storm of fast-paced business growth. To make sure you don't miss a single profit-boosting show, subscribe to this podcast at iTunes and www.sailingtosuccesspodcast.com. To learn more about how Lindsay and her team can help you increase customer service, run your business more effectively, and increase your profits, go to www.ssonlinesupport.com. That's www.ssonlinesupport.com. Now go and implement what you've learned and come back next week for more Sailing to Success podcasts.